In the last letter to, or not the last letter, the fifth letter to the churches in Revelation, and we're starting in Revelation 3 uh, and verse 1. It's to the letter to the church of Sardis. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who is the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not strolled, sorry, soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, I just pray that you would take away all of me and that your Holy Spirit would come through in what we read and hear today. As we sung in the song there just a minute ago, come Lord Jesus, come. Come Holy Spirit, come. That we might hear your voice this morning. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to hear this morning, Lord, what you would have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark, can I probably ask you to turn down these lights a little, little fraction? Thank you. That's better, much better. Thank you. You know, uh, the fifth letter to the churches, the one in Sardis, I think is probably one of the saddest of the ones that we've read this far. Because this church had a reputation of being alive, but yet God said to it, it was dead. In other words, it seemed to be doing really well. It seemed to be doing all the right things, and yet it was dead in the eyes of Christ. What a sad indictment. It's been really interesting going through this book of Revelation. You know, you think you start off and you think, yeah, we're going to get a revelation of Christ. And then the first thing that happens is you read all these letters which bring indictments against the church. And it's hard to try and get some real good encouragement out of this. But this morning, I really want to encourage us. But I also want to look at what it means to be dead. I want to suggest to you this morning that this angel... Um, relates to the spirit of might, the fifth element of the Holy Spirit, or the fifth aspect of the Holy Spirit, and the resurrection of the dead. 
You know, the things in this world that are around us often tend to become distractions from the things of God. And they make man dead to the things of God. They can suck the life right out of us. They can suck the life right out of our hearts. And the things of God become dead to us. Life can be hard. And if we let life's issues envelop us and surround us, it can literally suck the life out of us. I think I've mentioned to you before that when we first became Christians, I was so excited. I was so in love with Jesus. And I let it show. I wasn't afraid to let it show. And one of our elders' wives stood on the steps of the church one day and told me that I reminded her of her husband eight years ago. And I said, God, I do not want anybody to say that about me. I can't say I've lived up to that. Because life happens. Life can take you by surprise. And if we let it envelop us, then it can squeeze the very life out of us. Jesus is introduced here as the one who has the sevenfold spirit and the seven stars. He's the author of life. He's the one who holds the power of his perfecting grace to change us and mold us. His life to the dead. He is life to the dead. He breathes life into our very beings. Dead people being made alive in Christ. Dead spirits being brought back to life in Christ. So before we get more into this letter, a little bit of background to the church in Sardis. You know, it seems like the church in Sardis was almost the very opposite of what was going on in Smyrna. Smyrna, the church in Smyrna were being put to death, but yet they were alive. And here we have the church in Sardis who appeared to be alive, yet were dead. It's a rich but sinful city. The ancient capital of the Lydian kingdom used to be called Hyde in the early years, and then became known as Sardis, somewhere around 1200 years BC. And then took its place prominently as the capital of the Lydian kingdom. Sardis had known its conflict. It had known its battles. It had also known its defeat, despite being known or be, despite even being an almost impregnable place because of its position and height at which it stood. However, in the times leading up to Christ, it had been defeated a couple of times, which came as a great surprise to them. There was a temple there to Caesar and to the Empress Livia, and they worshipped Caesar as a sun god. Remember, we spoke a while back about how the Romans looked at their emperors as sons of God. 
and they worship Livia as the mother goddess. The story of Sardis, therefore, is a story of degeneration. 700 years before the letter to Sardis was written, it had been one of the greatest cities in the world. But by the time this letter had been written, it had decayed and decayed and decayed even further. It still had a little importance. But today, it's a pile of ruins near a little village called Sarti. And yet once it was the glory of the Lydian kingdom. It was the capital, sat high up, 1,500 feet up on the end of a rock, just about. So they thought they were impregnable. They thought nobody could defeat them. They were strong. They were the powerful one. They were the capital city of the Lydian kingdom. Nobody was going to come against them. Not one army would be able to defeat them because of where they were. And yet twice they'd been completely defeated. See, how many times do you think we can stand strong and think we're standing strong? What do the words of the song sing? Be careful when you think... Is that right? I can't remember the word. Be careful when you think you're standing strong. Does anybody know that one? Be careful you might fall. It goes something like that. Once Croeus was a great king, Croesus, Croesus, it's a difficult word to pronounce, he expressed himself with unlimited luxury and wealth. To the north of the valley where it was, it was, it was situated around the, the fertile Hermas Valley. To the north of that valley rose a, a long ridge of mountains. And from that ridge, a series of hills ran out like spurs. And they each formed a narrow plateau. And in one of those plateaus was Sardis, about 1,500 feet high. Almost like a granite pier sticking out into the valley. It looked like a, a giant watchtower was believed to be absolutely undefeatable. So in this interesting and fascinating atmosphere of a degenerating city, a little church was born. And it was to this church that this letter is written. You know, here's a church that must have started off with life. It must have started off with life. But slowly and surely, it had slowly become almost totally compromised by its surrounding culture. Very much like the Israelites in their times of scattering and captivity. When the prophets were given the word of life to awaken the people of God to the things of God. To awaken them from their sleep. The church in Sardis was told in the if you if you read the King James Version, to be watchful. This is a term which means to be awake to God. The Greek word is Gregorio. And I think that's where we get our word gregarious from. Meaning to be awake, to be alive. You know, we must be awake to Christ, our spirit, connected with His spirit. Our spirit, I've been awakened by the spirit of might. Jesus is saying to them, 
Wake up, church. Wake up, church. Because you have a reputation for being alive, and those around you think of you as being alive, but yet you are dead. Set your spirits on fire again. We sang that song a couple of weeks ago. I think it was Lyle. Was it you that sung it or one of the folks sung it? Lord, light your fire. Lord, light your fire again. Light the fire again in my spirit. You know, we sing these words, but do we really mean them? Lord, light the fire again in my soul. Light the fire. Maybe your fire's all right. I don't know. Maybe it could do with just a billow, giving it a bit of breathing. Because some of us, our fires need to be lit again. Light the fire. Lord, come and awaken our spirits once again. Go back to the roots of your first encounter with Jesus. Now, what he's not saying here is go back to our traditions. He's saying to go back to when you first met him, to what you heard. Can you remember the day you first met Jesus? Can you remember it? Can you remember what it felt like to be suddenly these chains were broken and you were set free? Go back to that. Go back to the day you first met him. Listen to his voice. See what he, had, what he did in your life. Remember what it was like when your spirit first flew. It rose up on wings like eagles. Remember how you fell in love with him. And then what happens? As we settle down into routine. We settle down into Christian life as we know it. Life takes over. The world surrounds us. And suddenly we find that this Christian life isn't quite as easy as we thought. You know, any marriage takes work. Granted, some take more work than others. For instance, no, I wouldn't do that, no. No, <laughs> I can't. Paul would never forgive me. <laughs> I'm going to love it. You're away next week. Just wait. I'm going to love it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, it's the same with our relationship with Christ. It takes work. Do you remember when you first, for those of you that are married, do you remember the first time you met your man or your woman? How that love burned in your hearts? Maybe not the first time, maybe it took a little bit of work, but when you got married, you were in love, and then life happens. We have to work at marriage. Paul just had to work a little bit harder. <laughs> okay, I'll stop now. You know, we can't keep that first love going strong without working at it. Without remembering that first love that we had. 
And it's the same with Christ. We find that first injection of love that comes when we first meet Christ. And then we settle down into serving and doing church stuff. We get into the routine of Christian life, and our first love starts to fade. Or it simply starts to meld into what we are doing. And very soon that first love melds so much into what we're doing, our love becomes engrossed in what we do rather than who we are and rather what Jesus did for us. Very soon, it gets caught up in what we are doing, and our love for Him becomes formed by what we do rather than who we are and who He is. That was the problem in Sardis. Remember, they had a reputation for being alive. They had a reputation for doing all the right things. But yet Jesus said, you're dead. And I just, I find that incredible. They were a good church. They had a reputation in their community for being a good church, doing all the right things. But yet, the very thing that had made them alive to start had gone. Their first love. I think I mentioned last week a little bit about our youth group where the kids used to come in and have a cigarette. Sorry, go out and have a cigarette, we'll call it this time. Just so there's no confusion. And they used to come back in and go out and come back in and go out. And I remember one old dear lady saying to me one day, she said, we don't really want them here because they're spoiling our holy time. This is my time to be holy. I think I said last week, I nearly told her I'd rather they were here than she, but I resisted the temptation. You know, if our love for Him is wrapped up in what we do, if our love for Him is wrapped up in the things we do even in church, I say in church, shouldn't be saying in church, but as part of the church, then we're in the wrong place. Because it then becomes, if I can just try a little harder, He will love me more. The harder I work for God, the better He will feel about me. Or here's a classic I've heard since, I've coming, over, since coming over her here. If we do our best, then God will do the rest. You know, I think that's another piece of nonsense. I'm sorry. Because God is working all the time. He just wants us to jump in on what he's doing. It's not about if, if we do our best and God's going to suddenly miraculously come and do the rest. God's doing it already. He just wants us to join with him. That means that our relationship with him is based on how we do and how we work and how we serve and how we lead our lives. If we can give him just the best, then he's going to come. What a load of nonsense. He's here already. He's here already and He's working already. We just need to recognize in our hearts, see Him where He's working and join in with what He's already doing. 
God doesn't need us to do our best. God needs us to have a relationship with Jesus. He chose us. We didn't choose Him. He chose us. He chose to be part of our lives. He pursues us every minute of the day. He's just working all the time. We just need to open our eyes and our hearts to recognize Him. To recognize what He's doing. Let's get back to our first love. Let's get back to that time when we remember that time when we first fell in love with Jesus. Without all the other stuff that we've since wrapped around us in our lives. You know, I lived my life a long time in a fear that I wasn't doing enough for God. I wasn't doing enough to please Him. I lived my life in this constant battle that was going on saying, I wonder if, oh, I, I, I messed up today. God's going to hate me. Or, I messed up today. Oh, I've spoiled my chances. Is he going to, am I going to become one of those people where he says, you call me Lord, Lord, but yet I don't recognize you? I live my life in that fear. And it's a horrible place to be because then what happens in our lives is we try and work harder. We serve hard. We try and be better people. We can't be better people because Christ has done it in us already. And Christ died on the cross for you 2,000 years ago when he loved you in his ultimate place. It was love that held him to that cross, nothing else. Love. Love for you before you were even a twinkle in your mother's eye. That's another English expression, by the way. But today, I stand in a place where that burden has long been lifted from my life. That weight has been taken off my shoulder. I no longer strive to be a good person. I know I'm not a good person, but I know that my God loves me just the way I am. And yes, He wants to see Christ more and more developed and, and, or fulfilled in my life, but He still loves me just for who I am. And He loves you just for who you are. It doesn't matter how much you work for Him. It doesn't matter how hard you work at being good. It doesn't change the way He feels about you because that was sealed in the cross 2,000 years ago. And, you know, as a church, we've had... I'm talking church in general. Over the years, we've done such a bad job because we put so much pressure on people to be good people. We've talked about this before. We cannot be good people because we are inherently sinful. But Christ in us does everything for us. It changes our life. We are made holy in Him because Christ is in us. The work was finished on the cross. You know, I know that regardless of what I do with my life, I am loved by my Jesus. 
For those that did not repent and turn back to Christ, their names would be erased from the book of the Lamb. Now, I'm going to come back to that verse in a moment. Because I think that's a very significant thing that's said there. For those that would not repent, their name is going to be erased from the book of the Lamb. But for those who turn to Christ, He is going to clothe them in white. White being the color of cleanliness. You're made clean in Christ. You're clothed with His righteousness in Him. You're made pure in Him. And the great thing is that He's going to go before His Father and announce that we are His. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is going to go before His Father and say, we are His. He's going to speak on our behalf. Isn't that amazing that the Son of God is going to go and speak on our behalf to His Father? I think that's amazing. This little church in Sardis started off with a spark of life. Christ did something in them. Christ changed their lives. And as a result, a church was born. But as the life went on, they did all the right things. They were doing all the right things. They were seen as being alive, but yet they are dead because they'd lost their first love. And the angel was saying to them, go back to your first love. Go back to Jesus. Go back and know who you are in Christ. Go back and remember the day that you first met Jesus. And if you do that, then I am going to announce you before my Father. I want to leave you this morning with a little thought. I want to challenge your thinking a little bit. And it's going back to the verse that we read a minute ago, or we mentioned a minute ago about our lives being erased from the book of life. You know, I was always brought up as a young Christian with this thought in my head, and it was often said to me, that we need to get our names written in the book of the Lamb. Have you heard that expression before? That we need to have our names written in the book of the Lamb. And our evangelism is all wrapped up in this thing that we need to see people saved so that they can get their names written in the book of the Lamb. Well, I listened to some teaching from a gentleman a little while back called Harold Eberly. And this guy's an amazing speaker. He's memorized the Bible, he says. And if you listen to it, can you imagine that? Memorizing the Bible? Incredible. He can pick verses out here and he knows exactly where they are all the time. He says that he does it all the time as he's speaking. And he made a comment to me that really challenged my thinking because I was brought up with this idea that we were, essentially we had to become Christians or come to Christ so that we had our name written in the book of the Lamb. 
He said, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in Scripture does it ever mention our names being written in the book of the Lamb. Nowhere. I was really challenged by that. I thought, wait a minute. That's not my understanding of Scripture. My understanding of Scripture is that if you come to Christ, then your name is written in the book of the Lamb. Scripture only ever refers to our names being erased from the book of life or the book of the Lamb. It never mentions how we get in there. It never tells us how we get in there. It only mentions us, mentions us our names being erased. And a lot of these references are actually in the book that we're reading at the moment in Revelation. So here's the question. What if our names are already in there? What if our names are already written in the book of life? What if every single human being's name that is ever born is already written in his book of life? And that only at the very end of our lives, if we haven't come to Christ and met Him, does God the Father reluctantly scrub our names out. Now, that then paints a very different picture to the one that I was brought up with. I don't know whether it does with you too. And in the journey that I am currently on, I am becoming more and more comfortable with that train of thought. Not because I think I like it much more, because I can't see in Scripture anywhere where it says that our names should be written in the book of the life or the book of the Lamb, however you want to call it. I looked up the references to the book of life, and you're very welcome to do the same, or the book of the Lamb. And none of them mention being written in it. They only mention being erased. So I ask you the question this morning. I wonder whether our names are already there. And it is only reluctantly at the end of our lives if we have not accepted Christ that God erases them from the book of life. You know, what it's done for me is really helped me see people in a different light. It's really helped me see people that don't yet know Christ in a very different light because their names may already be written in the book of life. And all God wants to do is introduce them to His Son, Jesus. I just thought I'd leave you with that question this morning. I can see there's a few frowns and questions on your face, and that's good. Because it really hit me hard. Because I'd always been brought up with this thing about getting people's names into the book of life. I'm not saying I've got it right. 
I'm not saying I've got it wrong. I'm becoming much more comfortable with that train of thought because I have looked at the references for it. Some food for thought, perhaps. But my heart this morning is more that we stop trying to do all the right things and go back and find Jesus that we first fell in love with. And it's not that we shouldn't be doing these things, but as we mentioned last week, it should be coming out of a heart that is bubbling over with love for Him. It's come, it should be coming out of a spirit that is entwined with His spirit. That should, out of there should come works of service. Because Ephesians 2 says He's already prepared them for us to do. But it shouldn't be coming from a place of obligation. It shouldn't be coming from a place of pressure from the front. There's always things that we can get involved in. But it should be coming from a place of where our spirits are entwined with His. And we are so in love with Him that we're alive in what we do and not dead as the church in Sardis. Wouldn't it be an awful thing If we were doing all the right things, if we were trying to do all the right things, be the right type of people, be the right Christian or the good Christian person, and yet all the time Jesus is saying, but you're dead because you don't know me. You don't really know me. Your spirit is not connected with my spirit. Go back and find your first love. Go back and remember the days when you first met Jesus. Now, for some of you, that's probably hard to do because it's a long time ago. But I want to encourage you this morning. When did you first met Jesus? Can you remember that feeling of just this? Well, for me, it was. It was just an amazing time. It was like chains had been set, broken. Burdens had been lifted off my shoulder. And I fell in love with Jesus. I think it's one of the saddest indictments on the churches that we've read so far. That you have a reputation of being alive, but yet you are dead. Let not that be the letter that's written to us. Let not that be the letter that's written to this place or to the churches that we're part of. You have a reputation for being good and alive, but yet you're dead. Let us be alive in Christ. Let us soar on wings like eagles with His Spirit. Let us grasp hold of that first encounter with Jesus and go back and say, yes, Lord, I want more. Lord, light the fire again. Lord, light the fire again. Let's pray.